Good morning, church. So good to see all of you. We're going to study God's Word. So if you would open up to the Old Testament book of Jonah. You know, this is a really short book. It's going to be a really short series. Uh, It's just 48 verses in the entire book, and it was written to describe things that happened, things that really took place. This is not just some fable or, or some story. Uh, all of this really happened. Matter of fact, when Jesus Christ shows up 800 years after Jonah's time, Jesus says, hey, by the way, that really happened. Uh, he really did. Jonah was a real person. He spent three nights in the belly of the fish. So this is not uh, a fable. It's actual history. And the amazing thing is, so here now, 2,800 years later, we're still talking about this story because this story has deep implications for our lives, for God's church, and this story tells us glorious things about the character of God. And here's the thing, you know, this is not a story just about a whale. This is a story that reveals the character and greatness and sovereignty of God. And, and here's why that matters for us. Well, there's a number of reasons, but one of them is this. The more you know God, which this book reveals, the more you're gonna wanna trust him. And the more you trust him, the more you'll be prepared to live a life of faith. That's what the Christian life is all about, living a life of faith. But we don't just have faith in faith, we have faith in God. And to have faith in God, we need to know what he's like, what his capacities are, his powers, his character is. And Jonah is going to give us a glorious glimpse into the character of God. So here's where the story begins. In Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read this entire chapter to us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us, and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we will know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what is this thing you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. 
The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So most of the prophetic books in the Old Testament aren't about the prophet. They're about what the prophet is going to say to the people, except for Jonah. Jonah is about the prophet. It looks at the prophet himself. And Jonah, in that sense, is again, it's not about the fish. It's about a failed prophet. Jonah is a broken prophet. In one sense, we could apply that to our own lives, just looking at this text of Scripture and say, this, this text is about failing Christians and the God who tenaciously pursues failing Christians. It's pointing to that reality. This, this book of Jonah, it's about God's heart to save the very people Christians so often want to write off. That's what's happening there. Jonah wants to write off the Assyrians. Mercy can go to any place in the world, but not Nineveh. Right? And so in that way, it stands as a testimony to us down through the centuries of God's heart to save the very people we want to write off as, as long gone. Right? The book of Jonah, in this way, it's multitasking. It's getting tons of stuff done. It simultaneously reveals the character of God, his compassion. It reveals the sovereignty of the Lord in the world, and it confronts self-righteousness in the church and mission drift in the church. So I hope that a lot of these things, God by his spirit is going to be working them into our bloodstream so that we're his transformed people. You know, we could unpack this story in just three words. So I've got for you three words this morning. The first is the word go. Go. So the very first words of chapter one you see there in verse one are the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is supposed to be an exciting beginning. Those words, the word of the Lord came, that's supposed to make you pushed to the edge of your seat because the greatest stories, the best stories in scripture don't begin with once upon a time. The best stories in scripture begin with the word of the Lord came. Let me just take you on a quick tour. The word of the Lord came in Genesis, right? What happens? God, the first thing we see God doing is he speaks and he says, let there be light and there was light. The word of the Lord comes and creation comes into being. Creation comes to life. It's a testimony to the creative power of the word of God. Then you, the word of the Lord comes in the book of Exodus through Moses, the prophet. Moses is going to come of age and he's going to stand before Pharaoh and he's going to say, I've got a message from God. The word of the Lord comes through Moses to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And the my is God, not just Moses. It's God saying, you need to let them go or it's going to be bad for you. Like, I've got 10 plagues ready for you. They're all right here. You can do it the easy way or you can do this the hard way. The word of the Lord comes and what happens? God sets his people free. It's an exciting beginning to an awesome story. You keep reading the Old Testament. You come to, to the prophetic book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is standing. He's positioned by God and he's given this vision. And there's a vision about the state. It symbolizes the state of God's people in Israel. And it's a vision of a valley filled with dry bones, just corpses as far as you can see. And just their bones are left. And they've been bleached by the sun over the course of centuries. And God says, this is the state of my people. And then God tells Ezekiel, I want you to do something. It's going to sound a little crazy, but I want you to, in this vision, preach to the bones. And Ezekiel opens his mouth and he says, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord and the foot bone connected to the 
leg bone, right? And this awesome stuff starts happening. It's just this testimony to the resurrection, regenerating power of the word of God proclaimed. And then you come all the way over into the New Testament the night before Christmas. And there's the Gospel of John saying, I want to explain to you what happened when Messiah entered into the world and how does John's Gospel speak of the entrance of Messiah into the world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God saved his best and most powerful word for last. And Jesus, the living Logos, the incarnate word of God, steps into time and space, redeems us through his blood, saves us by his resurrection. Friends, all the best stories of God begin with, and the word of the Lord came. And if you're an Old Testament prophet, your job is to speak God's word on his behalf to whoever he puts in front of you, you start talking and you say not what you want to make up or your own opinions or your own hot takes. You say what God puts in your ear, you open your mouth and you say it. That's your job. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and that's God saying, Jonah, suit up. That's, that's the bat signal in the sky, right? Before he jumps on the bat pole and hops in the batmobile. That's what's going on when the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. And there is in scripture a kind of pattern, a call and response pattern. You have it there in your notes. It's a pattern of scripture of call and response. So here's a, a perfect example of how that goes down is seen in the book of Ezekiel. So God comes and he speaks to Ezekiel these words. He says, Ezekiel chapter three, get up, go out to the plain, and I will speak with you there. So I got up and went out to the plain. That's the pattern you see frequently when God speaks to one of his faithful servants. He says, get up and go, and they got up and went. That's the pattern of language that you see all throughout the Bible, except with Jonah. God says, get up and go, and he got up and fled. That's the language. It's, it's, supposed, it's like the it's a screeching of the record. The music stops. It's like, wait, no, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't do what all the other faithful prophets did. He goes the other way. He fled from the Lord's presence is what Jonah chapter one tells us. Get up and go to Nineveh, he goes up and goes to Tarshish. And this explains why the story transitions quickly from the word go to the word no. The word no. So Jonah's no right here in the opening verses is a pretty loud, brazen no. And one of the ways you can see that is I'll give you a visual of how loud his no was. So there he is at the letter A, there's Jonah. The letter B is where God tells him to go, Assyria. Assyria, 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 that's modern day Mosul, Iraq. That's 550 miles north and east of where Jonah sits. Does he go 550 miles east? No, he goes 2,500 miles west. He goes, matter of fact, he goes as far, he goes to the end of the earth, as far as their conception was at that time. The tip of Spain at Gibraltar is as far as you can go. It is at world's end in the westerly direction. So let me just put this in our own contemporary situation. So here we are in Birmingham. It would be as though God says to you, hey, I want you to go to Raleigh, North Carolina, 552 miles east of Birmingham and you booked a ticket to go to Portland, Oregon, 2,500 miles west and north. It is, it's not even almost Riley. It is anti-Riley. It is the opposite direction as far as you can possibly go the other way. So, which begs the question, why? 
Why, why would a prophet resist in such brazen terms the clear command of God? And, and here we're going to develop this point. Here's the first point here. They were the enemy. The people that God called him to, the people in Nineveh, were the enemy. Verse 2 in our passage refers to it as a great city. It was a massive city, and it was a city filled with evil. God says, their evil has come up before me, and it had come up before Jonah. And it was very aware of in uh, the kingdom of northern Israel. They knew about the evil of Assyria and its capital city, in Nineveh. This was the dominant world empire. This was the superpower of the world in the 8th century BC. And, and Jonah's grandparents probably told him the stories. This wasn't just hypothetical evil or evil done somewhere else in the world where you have to see it on the evening news, but it doesn't really connect to where you live. No, it, it dramatically connects to where Jonah lives because Jonah's grandparents had told him the stories of what happened in 841 BC when Assyria rolled up in their tanks and leveled everything in sight. Devastated Israel and Damascus took over, slaughtered thousands. That story was seen by jo Jonah's grandparents and they would have told him the story of what took place and what Shalmaneser did. Matter of fact, in that moment, Shalmaneser, the, the emperor at the time of Assyria, you know, because they can't take a photo op to to capture the moment of my dominance here in Damascus and Israel. So what did they do? He, Shalmaneser III commissioned the black obelisk. It's, it's right now, you can go see it in British Museum, the black obelisk. And he said, I want you to make a sculpture that reminds everybody of my 31 greatest moments in history, the 31 acts of absolute dominance that I have wielded upon the world. And here's one of the pictures that he commissioned. And you see that person bowing? That would be Israel's king, Jehu, bowing before Shalmaneser. And then under, this is Israel's defeated king, Jehu, and he's under these symbols of Assyrian gods, Asher on the right and Ishtar on the left. This is the ancient world's best way of talking smack and saying, hey, remember the time when I did the thing and I rolled over all your people? and I made your king bow on his knees and worship before me and underneath the gods of Assyria. Remember that? And he rubs it in the eyes of the people. And you can still see this thing 2,800 years later. In other words, you've never hated anything or anyone as much as an 8th century Hebrew hated Assyrians. They were the enemy. There's no way. Pick any other people on earth, but I'm not going to Nineveh. They do not deserve the preaching of who you are, right? So they were the enemy. Next point, why not go? Because it was dangerous. It's dangerous. You just bring this all on board in light of what we just talked about, right? Jonah is, is called to announce God's judgment on Assyria in Assyria and not just in the backwoods of Assyria. I want you to go to the capital city. I want you to stand on the mall, and I want you to grab a microphone and announce the downfall of this kingdom right there in the glory of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. That's where I want you to announce the devastation. Imagine that, right? So make that a little bit more contemporary. Imagine you are a Jewish rabbi in New York City in 1941, and God says, I want you to go to Berlin, and I want you to announce the downfall of Nazism. It's like, 
can, can I write a blog? Like, can I do anything else other than actually go there, given what I am, and denounce that powerful ruler? It's a dangerous mission. I think those were probably all contributing factors, but here was the main one, and we'll unpack this more fully next week. The main reason is this. Jonah didn't want God to save those people. He didn't want God to save those people. So that's why when God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, he says, what's the furthest west I can possibly go? How far can I get away from this call? He goes AWOL, headed toward Spain. You think about this in terms of your own life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. When Christians say no to God, how does that play out? It plays out a certain way, and here's a common way it plays out. We find circumstances that confirm our chosen direction. Isn't that true? We, we look for ways that confirm, okay, yeah, I think, I think I'm going in the right direction by going over here instead of over there, right? Jonah, it's almost like you can picture him coming up, and he looks at the boat, and he's like, where is this going? And then he sees that it's going to Tarshish, and then it says, you know, $35 to Tarshish, and he reaches in his pocket. He's like, I have $35. It can't be a coincidence. Like, I have the exact amount of money to get to that place. I've never been to that place. He might even reason and rationalize by saying, you know, aren't, I'm sure there are unbelievers in Spain. You know, surely there are lots of people who don't know God there too, and I'm sure God cares about them. I'll go tell them, but I'm not going to Nineveh. And you can almost hear him play out the rationalizations that are going on there. Here's the point. When somebody wants to disregard the clear teaching of Scripture, they have a way of finding a way to disregard the clear teaching of Scripture. Right, that's why we sing in the great old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're aware of those impulses in our own hearts. You ever heard of confirmation bias? So here's what confirmation bias means. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. Confirmation bias. I, I, I remember it so well, even as a teenager. So, you know, my, my mom would get on my case because I'm doing this or doing that, and it's just not wise or it's foolish or it's sinful or whatever it is, and she's doing her job, right? She's being a mom. I remember one in particular where she got on my case and corrected me, and I was militantly against her correction. In this particular case, I was especially militantly against what she was saying, and I remember the next day, I opened the book of Psalms, and I happened to fall upon the verse that says, when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And I thought, there it is, it's proof. Mom's out to lunch, God's with me, right? Just that confirmation bias. This is what I wanted to see. This surely can't be coincidence. God is speaking to me and he's telling me, I got your back, right? I know your mom's kind of coming out of left field. She means well, but you're actually right on this one. That's confirmation bias. It happens all the time. Christian friend, you've got a Bible to keep you from being blown around by your preferences that are dressed up as providences. That's why you've got the all-sufficient, clear word of God. He has spoken once and for all. He's told us what life is about. He's told us his mission for our lives and his purpose for our lives. The bottom line, the upshot is, don't trust yourself. Trust God's word. 
Our lives are meant to be grounded on the rock of biblical truth, not my intuition, not me holding my finger in the wind or being driven by my preferences. God's word sets the course for how we live our life, the big lanes in which we live all of life. So we find circumstances that confirm our chosen direction. Here's another thing we do. We claim inner peace as final proof. You ever use the phrase, I have a peace about it, right? And it's, it's really a conversation ender. Because, oh, she's got the peace, right? It's the peace thing. Like there's no way you can invade, you can't subject that to scrutiny or outside examination. It throws a massive shield up and says, you can't talk to me right now because I've got the peace thing going on, right? <laughs> Happens all the time. So the question being, think about it, does God give a peace to those who follow him? And the answer is yes, unless he doesn't. The answer is yes, he gives a peace. Sometimes he gives a peace when we're in the will of God. Ask Jesus, do you have a peace in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's doing the will of God. He does not have a peace. He's trembling, he's bleeding out of his pores. He's saying, is there any other way? He doesn't have a peace, but he's right in the middle of God's will. You ask the apostle Paul, when he comes trembling to Corinth, he said, I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling. He's not saying, I just had this sense of serenity. No, there was no serenity, and yet he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. Here's the point, a subjective sense of peace isn't final proof of God's guidance. It's a subjective sense of peace. It may or it may not be from the Lord. Jonah never slept a better night in his life than he did below decks, headed to Tarshish. He would have said, I've got a peace about this. I'm sleeping great at night, but you're going the wrong way. But I have a peace. (laughs) You see, it confronts that. Go, no, no. And then the final word to tell the story is the word so. God says go, Jonah says no, and then we find out what happens in the aftermath of disobedience. Here's the point, disobedience to God's word brings pain into our lives. Disobedience to God's word brings pain into our lives. You you see what happens next, right? Jonah is sleeping one minute and he's drowning the next. We, We don't disobey God with impunity. It's not okay to disregard God's commands and God's words. That's why even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're, you're gonna reap. There's gonna be consequences of foolishness that come into our lives. Friends, sin will never take you anywhere good. It will never take you anywhere good. You go all the way back to the original sales pitch of Satan to Adam and Eve in the garden. And what was he saying? He's saying, break the glass ceiling. Look, he's holding something behind his back. He's giving you all this stuff. He says it's the blessing. But this is actually where the real money is, right here on this tree. You can have an identity outside of who God has made you to be. That's the original sales pitch. You can get his blessing and run your own life. You can have your cake and eat it too. Can we talk a little bit about Christian culture for just a moment? Here in our culture, there's a Christianity that promises that you can have God and he'll make no demands on your life. He won't ask you to do anything uncomfortable, anything you don't want to do. The only thing he's going to demand that you do is be happy. That's the only thing he really ultimately wants. Here's the point, friends. No Christianity 
like that exists in the Bible. That is not biblical New Testament Christianity. A Christian life that leaves you in charge is not a Christian life. It is not Christianity. It's not following Jesus Christ. Christian faith in the New Testament is, though none go with me, still I will follow Christianity. That's what it is. It's been that from the beginning. Christianity, New Testament Christianity says, I lived life for myself before. And then my eyes were open that I was making a shipwreck of my life. And now my eyes are open. And now I'm not living for myself anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The life that I now live, I live by faith. Eyes up, eyes out. I'm following him. My life is grounded in his word. Now Christ is my life. Now his people are my people. His people are my family. His glory is my greatest ambition. That's the Christian life that we see in God's word. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus had an awkward conversation with some people who came up to him and they showed him all their, all their spiritual resume of the activities they had done in ministry. He says, I, I see the miracles. I see all of that what's your name? I don't, I don't know who you are because you call me Lord, but you've never followed me. You've never obeyed me a day in your life unless it so happened to agree with what you wanted to do already. Jesus has that awkward conversation and he lets them walk. He watches their taillights go out away from him. New Testament Christianity. Christianity is a steady, spirit-empowered resolve to follow Jesus Christ wherever he may lead. And you think about it, nothing is, more, nothing is more costly, right? The Christian life is costly to be sure, but nothing is more costly than not following Jesus. Right? Nothing is more insane than treating God as small, than treating God as our life consultant. That's insanity in the Bible. Why? He's the Ancient of Days. I'm 45. He's been around. He's the all-wise king who loves me and has a plan for my life. Look, maybe this morning you've never followed Jesus with a full intent to go wherever he calls you to go, where you've turned your life, you've repented and believed, you've turned your life in his direction, acknowledging you're the one who saved me. You're the one who died on the cross to take my sins on yourself as my substitute. You've made me right with God and now I believe you. Tell me where to go and I'm going eagerly. That's what we see in God's word. A sovereign God does what? He goes to great measures to get Jonah back. He's not letting Jonah run the world. He's not letting Jonah run his own world. God is too glorious to be ignored. So he hurls the sea at Jonah. <laughs> and he topples the boat and he says, I'll break this thing apart, but you're not going to go the wrong way. <laughs> I'm going to tame you. Jonah, <laughs> because God is too wise and he loves us too much to be our sidekick. You know what would rock the world in our day? New Testament Christianity would rock the world in our day. A people slack-jawed at the glory and majesty of God. A people amazed at the cross of Jesus Christ, burned clean by the sanctifying grace of God and let loose upon the Ninevehs of the world in Jesus' name. That would rock the world. It's not happening right now, but what if it did? 
here's the message of Jonah, is whoever you are in this room, wherever you are on your journey, you were made for the glory of God. You exist to bring him glory. You come alive in the mission that he calls us to as his followers. Disobedience to God's word brings pain into our lives. And second, disobedience to God's word blocks blessing to the world. Jonah is the only one on board who knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all up above decks calling out to every God they can possibly name. They said, we don't want to accidentally not name the only one who can save us. So everybody, all the whole crew, name every God you've ever heard of. And then they go and they find Jonah and they say, name all the gods you've ever heard of because maybe you're going to name the one we've not named and that's the one who holds our salvation. It's almost ironic where they come to Jonah and they're basically saying, without knowing, tell us the thing you were supposed to tell Nineveh. Tell us the thing where you were supposed to show up in Nineveh in a moment like this and you were supposed to say, hey, Nineveh, a storm is coming and you will not be able to escape it unless you call upon the name of Yahweh, unless you call upon the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because all the other gods don't exist and this one does and he saves all who call on his name. And you hear the desperate cries and pleas of these pagan sailors and it reminds us of a truth. The truth is this. Nothing endangers the world more than the disobedience of the church. Nothing endangers this world more like the disobedience of the church. Here's another irony. They're trying to save Jonah. Right? Did you see? Even when Jonah says, okay, I'll tell you. You found the guy. I'm the problem. I'm why the, way, why the reason that the waves are battering against the ship. You need to throw me overboard. And even in that moment, they say, we don't want to do that. We're going to try to just row harder. Verse, verse 13, nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land. It's as though they're saying to Jonah, you say you're the guy, but we don't want you to die. We don't want innocent blood on our hands. You wonder, who cares about the other more in this moment? Again, it's ironic. You ever had the, the disorienting observation that sometimes the world is more merciful than the church? Look, this book begins by talking about the great sin and the great evil of the great city, Nineveh. But you keep reading the story and the point is clear. The biggest sinner in the book of Jonah is Jonah. It's not the pagan death machine housed in Nineveh, Assyria. It's the preacher. It's the prophet. So he's tossed into the sea, and we know what happens next in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Jonah says, the watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And we see at this point the peril of disobedience in chapter 1. And the final point is this, but God pursues us in our disobedience. This is such sweet words. But God. God pursues us in our disobedience. The, the fish isn't a means of judgment. It's a means of salvation. He's got seaweed wrapped around. He's already underwater. He's a landlubber. He loves lakes. He hates the sea. 
He can't swim, he's sinking like a stone, and here comes the fish, is God's salvation, right? In Jonah, chapter one, you see almost this back and forth, it's like a scuffle between Jonah and God. God did this, but Jonah did that. Jonah does this, then God does that. It's moves and counter moves, it's chess pieces moving around the board. God says, Jonah, go east. Jonah says, no, I think I'd wanna go west. I heard Spain is lovely this time of year. So he's headed out towards Spain. Jonah says, I found the boat fare. Got it right here, $35. God says, you got the boat fare. I own the boat. I own the sea. I own the fish. It's like, it's like God is saying, Jonah, I'm going to put you in the nastiest three-day timeout in world history. And you're going to come out a changed man. And I don't, I don't mind doing that, not one bit, because what I won't let you do is dawdle away your life and waste your calling. What I won't let you do, Jonah, is spend your waking moments hating the people I intend to save. That's not happening. I'm going to see to it. I'm going to win. There was a song a lady used to sing at the church I grew up in. It was called, Your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God. That's what Jonah's going to realize. <laughs> You're up against the wrong one with your acts of defiance and disobedience. God's going to win this by hook or by crook, right? It, did you notice when, when the crew finds Jonah and they're desperately trying to find out, who are you? Because I think you might be the problem. And they say, tell us where you're from, what country, where are your people, and what's your vocation? And Jonah answers every question except the one about his vocation. Why? Because his vocation is to prophesy. And he's not into prophecy right now. He doesn't want to speak for God. He's a mouthpiece that's not doing any speaking. He's, he's a broken prophet. Right, you remember the... Um, the island of misfit toys, where it's like the toy doesn't do what the toy is, so it's a Charlie in the box or whatever. It's just, it's, it's a toy that's supposed to do that, but it does this other thing. Instead, the toys didn't work right. Well, Jonah is a prophet who's not prophesying. He has one job to speak, and he won't speak. He won't even tell them he's a guy who speaks. He's choosing comfort and abandoning his calling. Friends, bad things happen when Christians get comfortable. Jonah tells us that. There's a lot of shaking going on in our world today, in our culture today, in our country today. Voices screaming, offloading cargo. If you don't have a Twitter account, look at Twitter, and every day, offloading cargo to make, to right the ship. It's happening constantly, and part of me wonders, is God about to throw us overboard and give us a three-day master class on the purpose of the church? because silent prophets don't do the world much good and hate-spewing prophets are even worse. Here's the news that we hold on to, it's this. God's mission will not fail. His prophets will at times, but God's mission will not fail because he's gonna be tenacious. He's not gonna give up, right? He might even be ruthless, but his mission will not fail. At the end of the day, God's global plan of salvation is not gonna be thrown off course by us. <laughs> I'm so thankful I'm not sovereign. My failures aren't sovereign. God alone is sovereign. And this passage tells us that our God controls the winds and the waves for the purpose of his global glory, and he will get his global glory. The Old Testament prophet said, the earth will be filled. Take it to the bank 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. We read Jonah chapter 1 and we become more and more convinced of the urgency of mission. Jonah chapter 1 tells us either get on board or get out of the way because he's not kidding. God is moving forward. Jesus will build his church. The gates of hell won't stop him. The fortified resistances of Nineveh or whoever else is out there will not be able to stop the spread of his kingdom. This is our God, friends. Let us worship him. Let us live for his glory alone. 